As we come to the, to the scriptures today, we're going to be in John chapter 9 in just a, a moment. A little update on Gary uh, before we get to the scriptures today. Gary is our senior pastor, if you're visiting or, or forgot. Uh, he's our guy. Uh, and we're, by God's grace, um, seeing him continue, God continue to restore health to Gary. He's in the office a little more each week. I'm not going to give a date here, but I'll say that we have tentatively focused on a, uh, a return in early November uh, where Gary could be back with us uh, teaching on a Sunday morning in early November. So keep praying for him, for Pam, and keep thanking God for what God's doing in his life, and we'll um, do that together. What we're going to do here today is read, we are on the 6th of seven signs. And by the way, let me set the stage for that too. Uh, we have gone week by week through the signs in the book of John. We are on our sixth consecutive study of, uh, of a sign today, and we have gone one, two, three, four, five, and six. Next week, we will, we will kind of observe Reformation Sunday and look back on that beautiful day. Okay, I'm going to do the math in my head real quick. I think it was 506 years ago. Uh, in 1517, when Martin Luther um, nailed the theses on the, on the wall, uh, the 95 theses saying, this is the essence of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, by grace alone. So through faith, by grace, in Christ. So, so we'll look at that next week while we receive the elements and observe and commemorate the Lord's table. After that... There's a few weeks in between that and Thanksgiving, and we'll see how we uh, organize it. But, but the seventh sign, which is the raising of Lazarus from the dead, will be a, either a two-part or maybe even a three-part uh, examination of that miracle so that we can kind of slow down on that one and, and take a closer look. So that's kind of where we're going in the next several weeks, so you can uh, kind of go there with us and uh, prepare your heart. Uh, after that, we're into Thanksgiving, and, uh, and then I didn't count how many shopping days till Christmas, but you can feel it's all coming our way, right? It's all coming our way. Good. All right, John chapter 9, the sixth of the seven signs that we're examining. I'm going to read just verses 1 through 7 in the text. John 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And Father, I pray that you would help us as we open your word today. We would 
be very close to you. We would be led by your spirit and taught by your spirit this morning. We pray that you would give me ears to hear and all of us ears to hear the glorious things that you tell us and show us in your word. All of them point to Jesus. And I pray that we would grow in our amazement and love for Jesus today. Help us with these things and more in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the first five signs that we have examined, and now here in the sixth one, we see what Jesus is doing, don't we? That he is systematically doing immediate physical miracles to establish a sense of awe and wonder in worship, and every one of these signs is aimed at something far bigger than the miracle itself. If we would go back to John chapter 2, we would see the water turned to wine. And that is not merely a, a miracle to save the day at a wedding. It is a statement that the ceremonial water jars used to cleanse my hands are no longer going to cut it now that Jesus has arrived. He fills those water jars with the wine of the new kingdom and invites everyone who sees this sign to come and celebrate Jesus is here. He's finally here. If we look back at John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, we would see the healing of the official's son. And we would see that Jesus, healing that individual, was making a statement that he has all power to heal. And that he can announce healing from a distance to anyone he chooses with all the power of heaven. He can heal by the power of his word in John chapter 5. The invalid at Bethesda. Remember that. In the shadow of the temple, Jesus is making this statement. While the temple is here and has been for generations, uh, the way to the Lord. Now, let me just say something there. The temple system and the sacrificial system was never the way to the Lord. Even in the Older Testament, Pharisees, teachers uh, of the law, they would never have said, well, the way that we gain the approval of God is by keeping the Commands, never. That was never the case. It was always by faith that God would bring one who would fulfill all of the temple system requirements. So I don't want you or me to get the sense in our heart, oh, Old Testament was by temple sacrifices and works, and New Testament is by faith. Not at all. Old Testament was by faith in the one who would come and fulfill all the signs and symbols of the temple. New Testament has now put the Pharisees in a quandary, and you and me too. Because here's the quandary. My whole life has been built on doing this day after day and getting paid to do it. My whole life is built on sort of controlling what's going on in the people around me. And Jesus is now saying, look, I'm here and I fulfilled them all. And you don't have the option to keep doing what you've been doing. You either see that the entirety of the Old Testament points to me and I fulfilled them all and you now trust me by faith, whereas you used to trust that God would send one by faith. You either trust that I'm the one or you're cut off. 
And that was the implication of the Jerusalem miracle at the pool of Bethesda. When he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And all of you who teach the law need to come and see that you have to come through me now. And you don't have the option. I think there's a lot of us that would just say, I don't like change. I don't like change. So I'm just going to keep doing the things that I've been doing. And Jesus is saying, you don't have that option. You either come all the way or you leave all the way based on what you do with me. And all of that was in John chapter 5, the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Remember what he said there? I am the bread of life. And so you either come and take me into yourself. You either come and completely embrace. You literally eat, well, figuratively eat my body. You you take it in and, and hold me as the nourishment of your soul, or you don't come at all. And in the midst of that, Jesus walks on water. That's the fifth sign, and the one we looked at last week. And if you remember, the walking on water was not a mere you know, H2O trick. It was a statement that if you leave everything and get in a boat, according to, like if you're my servants, if you're my disciples, Two things are true. One, the 12 baskets, there will be leftovers for you. I will always take care of you. You will always eat. I am your daily bread. And secondly, you get in the boat and the storm comes, and here's how you're going to have salvation. It's not by your works. It's not by paddling enough. It's not by your boatsmanship. It's by welcoming Jesus into the boat. When Jesus gets into your boat, you're saved, you're safe, and you're at your destination. You may have miles to go in this world, but you're, you're at your destination. So all of that brings us to this sixth sign today where we're saying, okay, well, what about this whole blindness thing? What are we to see here? Here's the point of the first five symbols or signs. They're all amazing, immediate, physical acts of power that impacted this generation that he was in powerfully and decisively, but all of them pointed to something far larger than merely water saving a wedding or wine saving a wedding or bread for a couple thousand people while they stayed out in the wilderness. Far larger implications to everything Jesus is doing here. And There's far larger implications from this miracle as well. But we are going to start by seeing the miracle itself. And that's where we're going in the message from this point forward. We're going to see the miracle in verses 1 through 7. And then we're going to see the meaning of the miracle in verses 8 down through the end of, of the chapter, verse 41. And so we'll start with the miracle itself. Because Jesus is the light of the world, he can give eyesight to the blind. He created your eyes. He created everything about you. He knows you inside and out. Psalm 139, he knit you together in the secret place. He knows everything about your, your life physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. He knows you. As he passed by, verse 1, he saw a man blind from birth. And don't you love the fact that he saw the man? While some of us would pass by a special needs situation, 
Jesus sees the situation and says, I got I to stop and help. take a look at this guy. I, I want to help this one. Now, he didn't help all of them, but I think we have to take the, the hint here that he stopped and saw him. And if you have a physical issue in your life, if you have a place of that you don't feel like you're uh, whole or normal or that you're like everybody else, can I just remind you that as Jesus passes by, he's not passing you by. Jesus sees you. He knows the questions of your heart and the doubts. He knows the situation that you're in, that this man for years, he's in a family. We're going to learn about his mom and dad in just a minute. His, his family is very frightened of the current polit- excuse me, uh, uh, religious situation, and we'll see that in just a minute. But Jesus sees this man who's been blind from birth. He created this man, and he created uh, his eyes and his eye uh, problem, verse 2. Then his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And we have to stop there. Sometimes the disciples put Jesus in a situation that is not fair or even logical. And Jesus is put in this this, this position of either or fallacy. And you will have friends as you follow after the Lord who will say, well, it must be either this or that. So it's either that this man sinned maybe when he was in his mother's you know, womb, or maybe very early on in his life, before they could even tell that he should or shouldn't or could or couldn't see, and so immediately somehow God's judgment fell upon him. Or maybe it was that in the previous generation, his mom and dad did some really wrong things, and God was just kind of zinging them, just trying to give him a little bit of like, okay, well, you sinned, so now this is, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get a blind son. Now, here is the issue for you and me today. What is the relationship between sin and suffering? And we have to say something very macro and then very micro. And the macro thing we have to say is that there is failing and falling and dying and weakening and sickness and hurricanes, tornadoes, trouble, bankruptcy, problems, being cheated and taken advantage of, broken relationships, divorce and trouble in this world. Generally speaking, all of that decay is in the world because of the fall of mankind. It's all here because we rebelled against God. So we could see, for instance, that Jesus, or excuse me, that God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden. They are in a paradise, but they walk away. God told them, in the day you disobey me, you will die. They throw off God's authority over them, and God visits them, not with judgment, but with grace. And and the first thing he says, I'm going to send one who's going to take care of this. And in our story today, that one is talking to the blind man. Romans chapter 8 says, we live in a world where the ecosystems around us are all falling apart. They are fallen. And they are groaning 
And we can feel the groan every day, whether you're checking out the news or you're watching the weather or you're experiencing uh, doctor's visits. We can all feel the groan of the human body, of the human condition, of politics, and of the natural world around us. All of that is because, generally speaking, of human sin. It is the results that we live with the consequences of sin. And Jesus here pipes up in verse 3 and says, but, but wait, it, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. So let's just stop there for just a minute. Right? The disciples give them this, gives Jesus this either or fallacy, and Jesus, as he almost always does, takes a third way. They say, no, no, it's not that, and it's not that. Now, listen, sometimes when you struggle and you have a big problem in your life, can I just say, it is the healthiest and most righteous thing in the world to ask yourself, what did I do to contribute to this situation? Jesus is not saying there is never a specific consequence to a specific sin. There often is. And I'll just invite you, you can watch this back later on our uh, website or uh, YouTube. You can go to James chapter 5 when somebody is very, very sick and the first thing that, that James instructs them to do is take a look at yourself and see if there's some, some culpability in you and uh, repent from it and ask the Lord to help you, right? So it's not bad to consider this. Jesus is saying, in this case, this guy, neither of those situations happened. Special needs people are in our world today not merely or mostly as the result of some sinning or deficit. Jesus is not saying, here's the cause or the reason for the trouble, they are saying, give us the cause. What was the cause? And Jesus is saying, here's the purpose. Here's the purpose of why we have people who are blind and born blind in our world today. Do you see the purpose? Verse 3, that the works of God might be displayed in them. You have special needs people in your life, and all of us do, because we go to this church, and we love each other. It's so that the works of God will be displayed. I was with a little girl last night and their family, and I won't tell you the whole story, but I'll tell you this. Special needs is uh, something that they're going to deal with with this little three-year-old girl. The beauty of this little three-year-old girl is that she loves life. She is the center of attention. She loves unconditionally, and I learned a lot about the love of God by watching this little girl be held by her brothers and her mom and her grandma last night. Crazy, amazing privilege. And sometimes we miss that when there aren't people with needs around us. If you have people with more needs around you, it's so that you can behold the glory of God. If you are a special needs person in this room, you are a gift to us. And we see a great privilege and honor in knowing you and loving you. You have significance because you're made in the image of the Almighty. 
and you are given to us as a gift. You are not the result of a problem. You are not a problem. You are not something gone wrong. You are not less than. You are not diminished. You are not throwaway. You are not forgotten. You are the cause for this congregation and this world to behold and see the glory and greatness of the living King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you for being here. Thank you for living amongst us. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Don't get ahead of yourself when you read that in verse 3. If you're like me, you get a hold of your, ahead of yourself and you're like, see, because he's about to heal him. Well, maybe, but not necessarily. Verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I took a long time talking about uh, verses 2 and 3, so we're going to cruise through 4 and 5. Here's the gist of it. Jesus is saying, now the cross is just a couple of months away, and I need to stay on mission and do the works that God's called me to before I uh, die and go to be with him. Now, just so you are really clear on this, once Jesus dies, the works of God in this world are not over. They're transferred. And so there's a little... There's a little season where the disciples go into an upper room and they are afraid and they are praying. But then in John chapter, uh, as Jesus is preparing for them, John chapter 14 and verse 12, he says, you know, I've been doing these great works. I just want you guys to know that the people of God who have the Holy Spirit in them, who have the ability to reduce suffering and call sinners to salvation, greater works will you guys do in generations to come even than Jesus did. That's what you're a part of. That's why my life feels so small when I make it about me and I make it about my time and I make it about my physical world and I forget for a second, I'm a part of the called out people of God and he has Ephesians 2.10, prepared works in advance, good works in advance for you to do to make much of him so that John 14.12 is worked out, greater works than even what Jesus did. Now, you won't do greater works than atonement. You won't do greater works than forgiveness. You won't do greater works than paying for the sins of all people of all time. We do greater works in that for 2,000 years, God has sent his Holy Spirit in a special way to his people to reach and love and care and proclaim Jesus clearly so that people of every tribe and tongue and nation will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and be redeemed. And that's just your mission and my mission as we serve the Lord together greater works than these. And so Jesus is saying, look, there's an intensity here. I'm about to go and I need to get these works done before I go. And that's what verses four and five are all about. Verse six, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. Now, I don't know about you, but if I can volunteer, I'm volunteering for the John six miracle where from, from miles away, by the power of his word, he announces healing, rather than the spit-in-my-eye miracle. 
that one's not as comfortable. In fact, I think this afternoon, if you guys are good, you should just practice this on one another. <laughs> that might be a fun Sunday afternoon. Very memorable, right? But the question will be for you and me, like, what is he doing here? He didn't have to do that, and you're right. He did not have to do that. So why is Jesus spitting in the mud? Is it because he's a boy and he knows boys are enamored by spit and mud? No. Look down at verse 14. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud. We're told what Jesus is doing. Remember what we said a couple weeks ago is that the Pharisees think that they rule over the Sabbath and the definition and prohibitions of work. Well, number 10 in their list of 39 prohibitions is there's no baking. And the implication, and by the way, no baking, for us today, I, I read this website this week about the application of these things. So if you like instant pudding, you can't take a powder and add the milk and stir it up on the Sabbath. Don't do that. And some of the moms in the room are like, thank you. Thank you very much. Some of the dads in the room, if you're the cook, are like, okay, now I've got no. But the point is, Jesus is purposefully, uh, he is purposefully confronting the rules of the Pharisees. When he spits on the ground and mixes it up, kneads it into a little cake of, of mud, and puts it on his eyes. They as much, they say as much in a couple of verses when they say, he doesn't keep the Sabbath. He doesn't keep the Sabbath because he's kneading the dirt in the ground. And so that is the point. That is why Jesus does this twofold miracle. He is again taking the previous confrontation of the Pharisees and to quote Emeril Lagasse, he's kicking it up a notch. He's taken it up a notch, and he won't let them continue to reject him. And so, chapter 9, having said these things, he spit on the ground, and he made the mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, you can read about the pool of Siloam in the Older Testament, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6. Um, it's the pool of scent uh, that means scent. And in, in Isaiah chapter 8, this pool was a place where the, the Gion Spring feeds it underneath the walls of Jerusalem so that they're surrounded, they always have fresh water. And in Isaiah 8, it says that, that uh, the Israelites rejected the gentle waters that were sent by God. And so Jesus is sending this man to the pool of Siloam, saying, I've been sent as a gift of grace to you. Now go to the gentle waters, the pool that, are, that is sent, and wash and come back. Parentheses. The pool of Siloam. If you just jot yourself in the note, do a Google search on the pool of Siloam this week. There's a Bible Places uh, website where they'll tell you all about the archaeological dig of the Pool of Siloam. It's a pool about 50 meters by 70 meters. They started unearthing it, and again, every archaeological find that they uncover and look to always proves the scriptures every time. Every time. Don't be afraid of history. Don't be afraid of archaeology. Be learners, loving to interact with the science, understanding where they're coming from, because in 2006, they unearthed this, and they're like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. 
this is the pool of Siloam. And they started for 20, 15 years. They've been, they've been digging down. Now, here's the thing. The Greek Orthodox Church, you know how tight all the land and, and uh, real estate is in, in Israel. And so they get to this place, and they're like, hey, we've got to dig right there. And the Greek Orthodox Church is like, hey, guess what? That's our property. So, no. So the pool is like half unearthed. And you can see pictures of it, and maybe one day the Greek Orthodox Church will equally want to see what the rest of it looks like. But for now, they're stuck. And uh, there's artists' renditions of what it all looks like. Here's the point. Jesus sends this man to this pool, and uh, it means sent, and uh, all of the things we just talked about. So he, he went and he washed, and he came back seeing. Okay, so that's number one. Because Jesus is the light of the world, he can give eyesight to the blind. All the rest of this passage is number two. It's the the next 34 verses. And so we'll say it like this. Because Jesus is the light of the world, he can make the blind to see. Now, lest you think I'm crazy and said the exact same thing two different ways for no apparent reason, here's what we're saying. The ability for Jesus to give sight to the blind is nothing compared to his ability to make spiritually blind people perceive their need for salvation. The problem of blindness is an inability to see that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. An inability to see that we, you, were born blind. John calls us blind here. Paul calls us in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 8, dead. The point is we have no ability to work our way back. The dead person cannot say, I'm going to try not to be dead. And the blind person cannot say, I'm going to try not to be blind. I'm going to try to see today. It's going to take an act of miraculous intervention by Jesus for you or me to see Jesus. So we have an option here. We can either see that Jesus is the light of the world or remain blind. And that is the, that's the tension point of all the rest of this passage, okay? So we're going to see the two different examples. And first is the response of the Pharisees. And, and we'll start in verse 8 momentarily. We see the neighbors who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, hey, hey, um, is this the guy? Some were like, well, he doesn't look the same now that he has open eyes. So I'm not sure it's the guy. And he's like, no, I'm the guy. I'm the guy, right? It's me. And so the the Pharisees, if you look at verses 13 through 17, the Pharisees are saying, look, we can't admit that Jesus has given this guy sight today because if we do that, we're going to give up our kingdom. We're going to give up our power. We're going to give up the thing about our life that makes us feel special. And so that's what happens. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And rather than seeing the miracle that he can now see, the Pharisees say, well, he made blood on the Sabbath. So he's, he, he's a sinner. Jesus, one thing we know about Jesus, just cut him off. Don't, don't trust him. He's not from God. No way. Because he broke the Sabbath. And we have friends like that, don't we? They hear the claims of Jesus, and they see the beginnings that Jesus may be or claims to be and is the light of the world. And like, you know what? I just, I just want to, I know it's a small thing, but I just want to hold on to my kingdom. 
I just want to hold on to my life. So I'm going to reject Jesus so I can continue building my, and again, I don't want to use too many examples because the point is anything that makes me hold on to my understanding of, of my kingdom in this world is what the Pharisees do here. Verses 18 through 23, they consider ridiculous alternatives. The man is saying, I'm the man, and the Pharisees uh, question him, and they say, well, maybe that's not the man. And they, so they bring his parents in and like, hey, is this your kid? Well, they're like, yeah, it's our kid. Well, what, what happened here? Well, I think you should note that the parents are kind of terrified by the Pharisees, and the Pharisees have done this thing where they're like, look, here's what we're going to do. Jesus says that you, that you need to reject all that we are, all of the temple systems, and realize that they all point to him and that he fulfills them. And here's what we're saying. If you say that he fulfills them all, we are going to cut you off from the temple system. And so for you and me with that, you're like, oh, okay, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. There's no way to salvation in the Jewish community prior to Jesus coming except through the temple. You're only coming when you have sacrifices for your sin. You're only coming when you come and worship the Lord there. You're only coming when you have faith that one day he'll send one who will take away the sins of the world. Jesus is saying, believe me or, or you're cut off. And the Pharisees are saying, believe him and you're cut off. And so you can feel that's the only power they have left is to threaten them with basically excommunication. And so that's what they're doing. And so they're considering these in verses 18 through 23, this, well, maybe he's not really the guy, these absurd uh, alternatives. And, um, and you see the, the way that the Pharisees are trying to intimidate the man's parents. And that's in verse 22. His parents said these things, they said, let him speak for himself because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, talk to him. We, we don't want to say anything. Verse th uh, the third concept here. And what we're doing here is we are establishing and making the case that you can't remain ambivalent towards Jesus. Right now we're on the Pharisees who reject him and we're saying they rejected him here and then it grew. They reject him here and here and here and there's no choice but to continue to, even if it brings you to a place of complete absurdity, they continue to reject Jesus. You're going to have people in your life that go to absurd places to try to say that it's not Jesus. And so the third concept, verses 24 through 34. So for the second time, now they're calling this guy back in. Tell us, tell us again now what happened here. Here's what we are saying to you. Before you talk and tell your story, here's the one thing we want you to know. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Now what happened to you? And so here's what they're saying. You can say anything you want, but here's, here's our starting point. It can't be Jesus. Anyone but Jesus. And you live in a world just like that. Where they'll say, anyone but Jesus, anyone but the exclusive one, anyone who, but, but the one who claims that he fulfills all the Old Testament uh, promise about the coming to anyone but him. And so that's what the Pharisees do, anyone but him. And then finally, 
verses 40 and 41, the Pharisees are saying, look, um, we can see, right? We can see. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard him say these things, and they said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And so it comes to this ultimate place where the Pharisees are like, look, we reject him fully. We reject him constantly. We reject him no matter what. No, uh, they just cannot see what they cannot see. And again, be careful. We're not mad at that. All of us were there. All of us were there where we tried to hold on to our kingdom and we, and we tried to live our life without and we made fun of and we wouldn't listen to and we rejected and we said anyone but Jesus. And we let the issues of our life really tell us what to believe and so that's where the Pharisees are. And so we see this ongoing, cascading, intensifying rejection. The final place we're going to go is to see the ongoing, intensifying reception of the man. Because when you see Jesus and you know he's the light of the world, you, you can't unsee that. You cannot unsee that. And so we see this man, he is healed, and he goes off and he washes in the pool of Siloam. And they're like, hey, who did that? And he's like, dude, are you not paying attention? I told you I was blind. Now I can see. I don't know who did it. I, I couldn't see him do it. And so I really don't know. I'm not just playing with you. I don't know. But now look, look at his first statement about Jesus in verse 10. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus. Okay, step one. He identifies Jesus as a man who did something good for him. For some of us in this place today, that's as far as we can take it. We don't know what else to say. He's a man that did something for my benefit, and I'm asking more questions now. But praise God, you're asking more questions. That's where this man is. He's beginning to see. And he starts with this simple thing. Jesus is an historic reality. He's a person. Jesus was really here. He really healed in the name of God the Father, he really identified himself as the only one who could take away the sins of the world. He is a man. And that's a good step one. And that may be where some of us in here today are. He's a man. And I've seen him do some amazing things. But take a look. That isn't enough. Because the uh, uh, rejection of the Pharisees makes this man think more and more like, well, okay, who, who is he? Now down at verse 17, because now the acceptance and the reception as he thinks about it and, and continues to interact is going to go higher, verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Well, that's a, that's a good next step. He is a man established and christened from God, who came to us people in this world with a message from God for such a time as this. All right, I'm listening a little closer to this prophet who has come with messages from God. And so he continues to, to because they continue to re resist, he continues to think about this. Okay, he's a prophet. By the way, when people resist, 
that means they're struggling and they're, and they're really wondering. And so we have to be very wise about how we handle uh, relationships in our lives where it's a person that's very close to us and they're resisting, but they're still asking more questions. Maybe they're going from he's a man to he's a prophet, and if they're not asking the next question yet, guess what? Maybe you shouldn't answer it yet. It's not always good and right to hammer people with all the things you know about Jesus. Have a little bit of patience. Let the spirit work. And we're going to see that in just a moment. So he, he sees, okay, he's a prophet. Well, that's a good next step. That's wonderful. By the way, that happens not because of Jesus saying more to him, but because of the opponents saying more to him. And he's beginning to understand. Verse 3, there's a growing, conf- excuse me, our third concept. Uh, Jesus has come to the blind. He's a man. He's a prophet. And number three, he's from God. So verses 24 down through 34. So uh, for the second time, they called the man, and they're questioning him, and they say, whatever you say, just make sure you say he's a sinner. And now all of a sudden, this blind beggar being threatened by his parents telling him, hey, listen, if you say that he's the prophet, or if you say that he's the Messiah, they're going to kick you out of the church. You will have no access to come to God. It's a big moment. And this blind beggar quote-unquote, uneducated, says, okay, but here's the thing, you Pharisees, I can't play your irrational games anymore. If he saved me, I got to say he saved me. If he gave me sight, I got to say that he gave me sight. I need to let normal, regular happenings in the world be looked at and considered. And that's what happens then in verse 31. Verse 31 Verse 30, the man answered, it's an amazing thing, you, you Pharisees. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And so it has to be that God is listening to him. Verse 32, never since the world has begun has it ever been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So here's what he's saying. He's a man. He's a prophet. He's from God. Let that progression happen as the Lord leads and as the Spirit leads. You can't force it, and I can't either. Verse 35. Because we continue. Because he's not yet full of faith. Do you know that it's great to say that Jesus is from God? That's insufficient for salvation. That is insufficient for for life to come to the one who needs life to come, to the dead one. Verse 35, Jesus heard that that they had cast him out. So that's the next step. They cast him out. He has no hope of the pharisaical system bringing him back to God. He's been cut off and excommunicated from the the people. And uh, having found this out, they said, hey, um, Jesus says to him, no, let's stop there. Jesus had to come again. You see that? Jesus has to take the initiative again to come to this man. And maybe that's how I should be praying and you should be praying for the one that's close, but not yet fully believing that Jesus is the Christ. Not more effort, more Jesus. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, they said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He said, well, who is he, sir? So he's listening very closely to Jesus. 
Who is the Son of Man? Who is the one who will always sit on David's throne? Who is the one who will come and establish the kingdom forever and ever? Who is he? Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. See this intensifying response to Jesus? You're not just a man who's good. You're not just a prophet. You're not just from God. You're the son of man. And friends in here today, can I just tell you, if you're struggling with this, the, the, the call is to come and ask Jesus for help. If you say, look, I want to see, but, and I hear all of those things, but I, am still, I know that I still reject in my heart of hearts the light of the world, what do I do when I'm in that situation? I need Jesus to come and prove himself to me, and I know he hasn't yet proven himself to me. And the answer to, to, to that, I believe, my friends, is to just admit before the Lord that you're blind. Lord, I'm blind. That's what he says at the end of the Pharisees. If you think you can see and you persist in your opinion and keep holding on to your kingdom, you're blind. But if you will come to Jesus and let him know, I, I'm blind. I need help to see. And that's exactly what this man does. He comes to him and he has the most authentic response and that is this worship. Lord, I believe and he worshiped. He ascribed worship. He relinquished his life. He gave his life over to Jesus Christ. He surrendered his life. Two hints for growing Christians, and we're going to be done. Okay, number one, be aware of the intensification of both rejection and receiving Jesus. You can't always tell where someone is, but you can know that that is going to be the case, especially in what I would call groupthink situations, like Pharisees. There's going to be this intense, like the groupthink in our world, politics. Increase rejection. That's a fact. Just get used to it. That's what we should expect, like Hollywood, like, like cultural readings on the definition and identity of Jesus. Just get used to it. Group think every place and anywhere. The, the, the reality is the progression is going to be further and more violent and more certain rejection of Jesus at all costs. That's the world you live in, and it's okay. Jesus said, they hate me. They're going to hate you. You love them. Don't lose heart. Continue on. Be faithful. Hold to me with all your heart and mind and soul. Be aware of this intensification. And be aware where it's happening for someone receiving Jesus or embracing Jesus. Feed that. Maybe not by coming and forcing it, but by praying for that person. Number two, and finally, value seeing Christ. Value seeing Jesus Christ, the light of the world, over every other thing. Your highest call in life is to worship, to ascribe worth to Jesus. What am I supposed to be doing with my life? Making disciples. What is man's chief purpose, according to the catechism? Enjoy God, right? Worship God by enjoying him forever. 
And so that's what you're called to, and I'm called to, is this seeing Jesus, which is, is a nickname for worship. Worship the Lord with gladness. Friends, as we move through life, we're just going to have constant oppression and constant uh, people in our life that are saying no. And the call is just this thing. Oh, Lord, all my life I was blind. But the light of the world has shown up. And his power and the identity of his Savior has proven to me beyond the shadow of doubt. And with all that I am, I'm embracing Jesus. He is the light of the world. And if the world threatens to kick me out of their club, and if the world threatens to reject me, I'm not going to count them mean. I'm not going to count them as, as bullies. I'm going to expect that they are going to kick me out when I say Jesus is everything to me. That's life. That's right. That's the opportunity we have to be light in this world. And so, friends, if you've been blind up until this point, and even today you say, I want to see Jesus, but I don't yet, we are here for you, and we would love to pray for you. There's no person in this room that is the answer. The answer, and the only answer is, Jesus visits you by grace and shows you he and he alone is the light of the world. He has changed everything, and he wants you to see it. Let's stand and be dismissed. Father, one blind man receives sight 2,000 years ago, and that's amazing, and it's astounding to us, and we receive it and are amazed, and we are so thankful for the implication that handicaps and troubles and, and not being whole-bodied, whole-minded in this world is not an accident or a problem, or a less than. It's an opportunity to see the glory of God. And I pray, Father, that we see the bigger picture here, even bigger than that. Every rejecter of Jesus Christ needs Jesus to come and open our eyes so that we could see only Jesus, fully Jesus, He's the light of the world and our only hope. Dismiss us with your blessing, we pray in Jesus' name.